we're in this series of sermons on the return of Jesus. And last Sunday we talked about the resurrection, is that what will actually happen at the moment Jesus appears in the sky and comes back for us and our bodies are resurrected and we meet him and are with him forever. And there are, I told you last Sunday, there's two events that will happen on that day at that moment when we first see Jesus face to face and eye to eye. And one of them will be completely individual, just between every individual one of us and Jesus, completely on our own. And the other one is all of us together, his entire church, every believer in the entire world, all together. Individually, every one of us will stand before Jesus and he, his words were given account for our life. Every moment, every decision, every action, the Bible says even every stray word. We will answer for every moment of our life individually between us and him. And collectively, all of us together, every believer in the entire world, um, on the same day, at the same moment, because this is sort of outside of time, but Jesus will marry his church. He will come for his bride, and Revelation calls it the wedding supper of the Lamb. And Paul said that is great mystery, and it's beyond our power to comprehend. But we'll talk about that in about three weeks, is the wedding supper of the Lamb the bride and the bridegroom and so on. Today what I want to talk about is the judgment seat of Christ where each one of us individually will meet Jesus and stand before him and be rewarded for our lives. On two different occasions I've heard Bill Johnson, uh, pastor of Bethel Church in Reading, say this is the most important thing he and his wife taught their kids. He said if there was one thing they wanted their kids to get, it was this, that they would stand for Jesus stand in front of Jesus at the end of their life and answer for every single moment and every single decision. So if you know him, this is the emphasis that he puts on that, is that there's a day of reward and accountability coming, and it's both at the same time, and it's called the judgment seat of Christ. So last week we talked about that the, the, when this day comes, the moment comes, there's the trumpet and the lightning flashes and Jesus appears and both of the passages we looked at last week says that the dead in Christ will rise. Everybody else that's dead stays dead. Only Jesus' people are resurrected. And we meet him in the sky, and this is what happens. Revelation 22:12. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. That's the very end of Revelation. Jesus says, I am coming very soon and I have a reward in my hand that I can't wait to give you. Jesus is very excited to meet you face to face, eye to eye, and he has a reward for you. Whatever level of fear you have about Judgment Day, uh, you need to know Jesus is not scared of it. He's looking forward to it. He's very excited to meet you face to face, eye to eye, and he has a reward for those who have faithfully served him. Okay, a couple people. Matthew 16 says, The Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. It's from Hebrews 9. Everyone must die once and then be judged. And 2 Corinthians says what that is. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. 
In Mark 9:49, Jesus said, everyone will be seasoned with fire. I guess he likes barbecue. Here's what he says about that fire. 1 Corinthians 3, no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So, this is Paul writing, but Jesus said, Back in Mark, he said we would each pass through a fire, and Paul says our lives will be passed through the fire of the Holy Spirit, the purifying fire of God, and whatever we did in this life on this earth will be passed through the fire. And what is of no eternal value, wood, hay, and straw, is just earthly stuff that can be burned up, that will be burned up. And what is of eternal value gold and silver and precious jewels, that can't be burned. Jesus says we will be seasoned with fire. Paul says that our lives will be purified with this fire. And whatever we did on this earth that is of eternal value will last. It won't be burned up. It's gold, it's silver, it's precious jewels. Whatever we did on this earth that is, doesn't have any eternal value, it'll be burned up wood hay and straw so notice there this verse is to us this is not to the world this is to jesus's people because this is about the people whose foundation is jesus christ whatever we do after our faith is in jesus christ that is what we are building on our lives are you with me the wood and the hay and the straw that's not sins it's just stuff that we do that doesn't have any eternal value. It's just earthly, and it doesn't change eternity. It doesn't change anybody's life. It doesn't accomplish anything. The things that we do that accomplish something that are of actual real value, I mean our actions in this life, that might look like forgiving someone. It might look like going on a mission trip. It might look like giving your money away. It might look like fasting. It might look like any number of things. But whatever we do that actually impacts eternity and people's hearts and lives is eternal and it won't burn up when we meet him in his fire. Did you know that you can do things that actually shape eternity? Did you know that you can do things that will change your reward for eternity? You're in charge of that. Yeah. I've told you this story before, but for those of you who've forgotten or weren't here, here it is again. I read a book. This man had a dream of this very event where he met Jesus. He said, I was in a sea of people as far as you could see, just heads of a crowd. And he said, we were in heaven. Every single person in this crowd was saved. We were all in heaven. And he said, Jesus was walking around the crowd with a torch. And he said it was like a sparkler, sparks shooting off the top. And he said, every single one of us in the crowd had a pile of hay between our feet. And it was our life. He said, our lives were between our, between our feet, and Jesus was walking amongst between us, and he was lighting everybody's piles on fire. 
listen to what he said. He said, everybody's pile was mostly straw. Okay? Everybody's. Everybody's saved. Everybody's in heaven. But everybody's pile, everybody's life, was mostly straw. Nobody had a great big pile of jewels <laughs> because they'd been such a righteous, perfect Christian. Okay? Everybody's pile was mostly burned up hay. But what he said was Jesus would walk through and light it on fire and the hay and the straw and the wood and the junk would burn off and some people at the bottom under their pile of hay had diamonds and rubies and gold and silver treasures. And this man said in this dream that he had from the Lord, he said, it is impossible to describe how happy they were that something they had done mattered that something they had done in this life had eternal impact, that something was actual treasure and valuable to Jesus. And they would scream, they'd jump, they'd sing, they were crying, immediately said they would all fall and hit their knees and shove it all at Jesus' feet. That they had this pile of treasure to give to Jesus. And they were so excited, he said it was impossible to describe how happy these people were that something in their life had been right and had mattered to Jesus and was of eternal value. Then other people, he'd walk through and he'd light their pile on fire and it would burn to ashes and there was nothing underneath it. And he said, these people, it was impossible to describe the screams of agony and regret when they realized their existence meant absolutely nothing. They're all saved. They're in heaven. He said, they're not being condemned. Their faith was real and their sins are gone. But they lived such selfish, carnal, earthly lives that absolutely nothing they did mattered for eternity. And he said, the regret, their screams of terror and agony, you would have thought Jesus had just told them they were going to have to go to hell. But he hadn't. It was just the pain of regret that I can't believe I knew the truth and I did nothing with it. And my time is up. So this verse says, they will suffer loss. They will be saved, yet as through fire. So jokingly, I've said before, there's people in heaven that are going to be naked and smelling like smoke. Because that's all they got through with. <laughs> it's just a joke. But it is the truth that we individually have total control over what that day looks like by our choices now. Are we going to live for eternity? Or are we going to live for now? If you have any thought of false humility that, well, I don't need treasure in heaven. I don't care about that. I'd just be happy to make it. I'll just be happy to be in the back row, in the back corner. I'm just so thankful Jesus saved me. You need to shut that up. That is from hell. Because Jesus commanded us to store up treasure. Jesus commanded us to store up treasure in heaven. And if you don't do that, you're being disobedient. It is a lie. It is Satan's way of shutting you down through what you think is humility. Well, I don't care about treasure in heaven and I don't care about... I don't even know why we would need gold. Okay, God paves his streets with gold. I don't know why we need riches in eternity. But Jesus says that our good works here are treasures. And he commanded us to store up treasure in heaven. Next, next verse, 
is Romans 14. We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For as it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. And one more from Hebrews 4. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So every one of those verses I just read to you is only to Christians. It's not to the world. Okay, this is us. We will give an account to Jesus of every moment of our life, every decision, every action, every stray word. And Jesus is very excited about that. Come on now. Jesus is very excited about that. This judgment seat of Christ, what this phrase is used twice in the Bible, and when we meet Jesus, this is not for the world. This is not where Jesus separates the sheep and the goats. This is not where people are sent off to hell. This is only for his people. We will, on the very day we meet him, see him face to face and eye to eye, this will happen, that we will give an account for our lives. There is no such thing as judgment day. It's actually not a day of judgment in the Bible. There's actually two different judgments. One is ours, where we stand before Jesus and we receive our reward for our life. The other is a thousand years later when the dead outside of Christ are raised up to face judgment before God. Jesus is not there and we are not there. That's not a fun day when Jesus is not there. That's the second judgment. We'll talk about that a long time from now. This is our hearing for Jesus. And there's too many verses to read, but what the Bible says is there are, heaven is full of books. And it says there is an account of our lives written in heaven. Every single one of us has a book with your name on the spine in God's library. There is Mitch Koston and Kale Elmer and Jason Aquistapache and everybody. God's library. And it says every single moment of our lives is recorded. God's watched it all. Some angel is up there writing it down as fast as you live it out. Every single moment, good and bad, is there in that book. And God remembers and knows it all. That book will be pulled out. The Lamb's Book of Life, whose names of the people that belong to him, will be pulled out. And Jesus will crack open your book and read your life. If you belong to Jesus, this is what's in your book. In Acts 3, Peter is preaching, and he says, Repent that your sins may be blotted out. <laughs> Repent that your sins may be blotted out. A blot is in the days of fountain pens when the ink would spill out of the pen and you had a on the page. Okay? So God has your book in heaven with every single moment of your life recorded. But if you belong to Jesus, then somebody went through there, maybe Jesus himself, maybe an angel, I don't know, got your book out and covered up every single sin with the blood of Jesus. And it is blotted out. There is no record, none whatsoever of your sin. It is off the record. If you have repented, if you have asked Jesus to be the Lord of your life and your Savior, your sins are blotted out. If you don't have that, you can have that this morning. If you've never made Jesus the Lord and boss of your life, you can have that this morning. Your sins can be blotted out too. But as the 
Jesus flips through the pages of your life, big red sections, maybe pages and pages, maybe decades of your life, that's all just blood. Just blood of Jesus, blood of Jesus, blood of Jesus. Oh, here's something that we could leave on the record. <laughs> more blood, more blood. Oh, here's a nice couple of pages. <laughs> all of our books are mostly blood. All of it is mostly red. Thank God for the red letters. <laughs> okay, all of it is mostly red for all of us. But the judgment that we face before the judgment seat of Christ as the people of Jesus does not involve guilt of sin. It is not about punishment. It's not about wrath. It's not about Jesus scowling at us and saying, you didn't live up to it. Your sin is gone off the record if you believe in Jesus. If you have repented and made him Lord. 1 John 1, nine says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Anything wrong that we've done, any unrighteousness, any sin, it's all off the record. It's all gone. As far as the east is from the west, it's buried under the ocean, the Bible says. So this is why Jesus is excited about the day when he gets to meet us face to face and eye to eye because our sins are gone. There's no record. It's not the issue. For those of us in Christ, our sins are gone. So judgment seat of Christ is not about guilt. It's not about punishment. It's not about uh, Jesus bringing up all the bad things that you've done and you have to tell him why you did them and, and you have to prove how sorry you are. It has none of that. It's gone. But there is an assessment, an accounting, a judging, a measuring of our life's works. What have you done with what I gave you. 1 Corinthians 11 says this, if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. So this judgment seat of Christ is not about condemnation. It may involve discipline. It's going to certainly involve correction because none of us are going to meet him having arrived at perfection. But it is not about condemnation it is specifically for our salvation. When we are judged, it's so that we're not condemned with the rest of the world. Amen. Hallelujah. Somebody ought to be really excited. I said somebody ought to be really excited. Okay. All right. So a very real concern for a lot of Christians is, well, Okay, Mitch, I hear that you have to repent from I have to repent for my sins and they'll be blotted out. I confess my sins and they're forgiven, but what if I forgot something? Okay, you chuckle, but people are ter some people are terrified of that. What if back in 1996 I did something that I forgot to confess and and there's this this thing between me and Jesus that I that I don't know about and and he's angry and I'm not I'm not really saved. So what if I forgot something? What if I was unaware of something that I was doing that was a sin, but I didn't know it? It's a very real fear that people have. We're saved by faith, folks. I said we're saved by faith. Not by getting it all perfect. And Hebrews 4 says that Jesus judges the thoughts and intents of our heart. That's not about excuses not going to pat you on your head and say, well, you did the best you could. That ain't going to happen at all. But 
He knows the thoughts and intents of our heart. And if you are living in a state of true repentance and you honestly want to obey him, it doesn't matter if you forgot to confess something back in 1982. We live in a state of faith. We live in a state of repentance. We live in a state of forgiveness. Don't turn confession and repentance into more good works that you can't do right. I said don't turn confession into a requirement of the law that you can't do right. And then if you didn't exactly, specifically confess every sin, then you're not born again. That's not how it works. Because 1 Thessalonians 3 says this, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all just as we do you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Who establishes you blameless? He does. Thank you, Isaac. Whose responsibility is it as long as you are honestly living for him and in true repentance, you're not hiding hypocrisy or sneaking off and sinning and, not, and thinking you're getting away with it. That's not at all what I'm talking about. But if you are in honest repentance and true faith toward Jesus and you're honestly doing what you know to do, it's his job to make you blameless. Thank you. Next one, 1 Thessalonians 5. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Sanctify means wash you clean. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Come on now. It's your job to have faith. Yes, absolutely you must obey, but whose job is it to clean you up? Jesus. He is not looking for an excuse to turn you away. He is not. Have, want any reason to turn you away he wants you with him he does not want you condemned so he's not going to keep it a secret that you have some sin that you are unaware of that he hasn't forgiven you for he wants you to have real faith and real repentance and real relationship with him he isn't hiding something from you and you're going to show up on judgment day and he's going to say darn you did really really good but there was that one thing that you just never got right and didn't know it. And sorry, you're going on the down escalator. <laughs> Ain't going to happen, folks. It is his job to clean us up, and he will do it because he loves us and because he is faithful. Yeah. 1 Corinthians 11 again. If we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Even when he has to discipline us, even when he has to teach us right and wrong, and Hebrews says discipline is painful in the moment, it is because he loves us, and it is because he doesn't want us condemned with the rest of the world. He loves us so much. You do not need to be afraid that there's something secret that you forgot, that you haven't taken care of, that he's never mentioned, but he'll bring it up on that day. It isn't going to happen. That's not who he is. That's not what he said he would do. So then the next question on your mind is, well, what about the sins I know I'm doing? My hand's up. What about the things that I know are wrong and I do them anyway? I'm not worried about a uh, secret sin I didn't know about. I'm worried about the stuff that I know is wrong and I did it this morning. I lost my temper or... 
I said something hurtful or I was on the computer too late last night or whatever it may be. What about that? Is that blotted out? Well, John, in 1 John, John says, if you say that you have no sin, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. So if you have things that you know are wrong, that you have not yet had total victory over, you're in exactly the right place. If you are not scared of your own sin, you are not saved. And I mean that with emphasis. If your sin does not terrify you, you're not saved. You think you're perfect. Hello? That is self-righteousness. That's the Pharisees' way that we got it right so that we can please God. You've got to know you're going to come face-to-face -face with Jesus with sin in your life that you have not yet defeated. If you say that you have no sin, you're a liar and the, sin, the truth is not in you. First John. James, an apostle and the, the, the brother of Jesus, says we all stumble in many ways. Come on, I'm not excusing hypocrisy or hiding sin on purpose. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about your sin that you hate, that you haven't defeated yet. You're like... I know Jesus is really, really disappointed with me. I know he hates me. He can't stand that habit that I have. Well, let's see what Paul said about that. Romans 7. I apologize for the font size. I just have to listen to me while I read it. Paul says, I do not understand the things I do. I do not do what I want to do, and I do the things I hate. Anybody else? <laughs> this is the Apostle Paul. If I do not want to do the hated things that I do, that means I agree that the law is good. Paul says, so I have a lying problem and I hate it and I know it's wrong and I don't want to do it. Even though it's a habit, I'm agreeing that God is right, it's a sin and I shouldn't do it. Okay. But I'm, real, I'm not really the one who is doing these hated things. It is sin living in me that does them. Yes, I know that nothing good lives in me. I mean nothing good lives in the part of me that is earthly and sinful. I want to do the things that are good, but I do not do them. And I don't do the good things that I want to do. But I do the bad things that I don't want to do. This is really hard to read. So if I do things I do not want to do, then I am not the one doing them. It is sin living in me that does those things. So I have learned this rule that when I want to do good, evil is there with me. In my mind, I am happy with God's law, but I see that another law working in my body, which makes, me, which makes war against the law that my mind accepts. That other law working in my body is the law of sin, and it makes me its prisoner. What a miserable man I am. Who will save me from this body that brings me death? I thank God for saving me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So in my mind I am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful self I am a slave to the law of sin. Come on now, the Apostle Paul, the guy that wrote more of the Bible than anybody else, says, I got problems. I know what is right and I can't get it done. And I know what is wrong and I can't stop doing it. And I hate it. And the fact that I hate it proves it isn't me doing it. It's leftovers of sin in my body says, because by my will, by my real, my heart hates this stuff. And that is the key. 
between somebody who is a repentant person and somebody who's hiding and being a hypocrite is that Paul and anybody else is a wretched man. (laughs) I can't believe I'm doing this again. Here I go. It's not excusing. It's not hiding. It's not intentional hypocrisy. It is, I hate this, but I can't get it defeated for some reason. Who is going to save me? Jesus Christ. I said Jesus Christ. Yeah. So, on the day, Jesus returns. If you have died before that, you will come up out of the ground and fly up into the air to meet him. The rest of us will watch that show and then join you. All in an atomic second. And we will individually, all of us, meet before Jesus, stand before him to give an account for our lives. But our sins are blotted out. If you are part of this resurrection, you can know your sins are blotted out. And you're, you've confessed your sins and they are forgiven. And they are as far as the east is from the west, including all the stuff that you actually stopped doing and all the stuff you didn't know you were doing and all the stuff that you did know you were doing. It's all under the blood of Jesus. So then, what will that meeting actually look like? Now, we've addressed all your fears about, what about my sin when I meet Jesus? Okay, what will it actually look like? Will will I have to be compared to Billy Graham and Mother Teresa and Heidi Baker and Ravi Zacharias and Corey Ten Boom and Paul and Reinhard Bonnke and Joyce Meyer and Misty Edwards? Is Jesus going to stand us all in a line and all the good people get to stand up in the front and all of us losers get to stand here in the back because we're the bad kids? You know how your elementary school teacher did it. (laughs) All of the really great people of history will get to be at the front of the line. Mitch will have to be here in the back. He was a loser. (laughs) Let me tell you, that whatever imaginings you have about how you will be judged by Jesus, and that is the word, but it's not a negative sense, there is no measuring stick. That's the law. It's not like an amusement park ride where you have to be so tall or you can't get on. Did Jesus have his yardstick out there and will you, if you're taller than this, you get to get into heaven. It's not how it works. Okay? There's no comparisons, there's no hierarchy, there's no ranking list. It's not that you either measure up or you don't. Because we're not going to be compared with any other super Christian. The standard is Jesus and you. I'm going to tell you something you probably never heard before. Don't get angry with me till I show you how much scripture there is for it. Your judgment, your appearance before Jesus, where you actually do have to give account for your life and how you lived it, will be completely individual. You're not going to be shamed in front of everybody else. It is public because Jesus says God will reward you openly and he will brag on you and your faith and your obedience in front of all of creation. But there won't be any shame that you have to stand behind somebody else in the line and that you're ranked behind Billy Graham because you only had led two people to the Lord and he led two million. 
your judgment before Jesus with you individually is completely intimate and personal. It is you and Jesus. It is your life. It has nothing to do with what somebody, how somebody else performed. And you rank behind them because you only had 93 good works and they had 96. Let me show you how completely intimate and personal and individual judgment actually is. From Romans chapter 2. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law, that means God's rules, do, do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have God's law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts now accusing them and now even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. So Paul says here in Romans 2 that the people who know God's word and know what God has said is right and wrong will be judged by this. But Paul says there's Gentile. Think um, the tribes in the jungle that died, people that died before the missionaries got there. It's a major question everybody wants to ask. What about the people who died about before they heard, had a chance to hear about Jesus? Paul tells us right there. They're not judged by this. They're judged by their own conscience because they knew what was right and wrong. And when, they, when their conscience told them what was right and wrong and it agrees with the law of God, their conscience is a law on its own. An example is the Old Testament Jews and every Christian, every person who's heard the gospel, every person who can and should know this will be judged by this. But somebody who doesn't know something isn't judged by what they don't know. They're not held to a standard they couldn't have been held to. But, for example, let's say some native tribe in the jungles of South Africa that that millions of people have lived and died and never heard the gospel. But when somebody stole something from them, they knew it was wrong and it made them mad, so they went and stole their thing. Their own conscience agrees with the word of God that that was wrong, and then they did it anyway, it's sin. That neighboring tribe over there came in and killed my wife in an attack, so I'm going to go kill their wives. They're condemned. Because their own conscience, their own sense of right and wrong, agrees with the word of God because God wrote it on their heart. That's what this says. So they're without excuse. But Paul says very plainly, you're only judged by what you know. It isn't fair for God to judge everybody the same. Not everybody knows everything. Before you get too angry about that, check out all these Bible verses. Here we go. Romans 5, 13. Until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Romans 4.15, the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. If somebody doesn't and couldn't have known something, they won't be judged for it. Next one is James 4.17, therefore to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. If you know what is right, and you don't do it, you're sinning, James says. The obvious other side is there are people who don't know as much as you do. Every one of us will be judged individually based on what did you know 
Where did you come from? What did you do? And why did you do it? Check this out from Hebrews 4. The word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. I'll bet that you've heard, every time you've heard that first verse, the word of God is living and powerful, you've heard it mentioned as the Bible. But the next verse says it's him. It's Jesus. Jesus is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Jesus knows why, not only what we do, but why we did it. And he judges according to why we did something, which is why he told the Pharisees, you people do all these great religious activities, but you do them for show and you will have no reward. But then the, lady, the widow lady at the, at the uh, synagogue who puts two little half-penny coins in, he says, she gave more than everybody else because she gave everything she had, and they just gave a little bit of their wealth. Do you see it? Jesus judges completely individually. And he judges, why did you do what you do, not did you do something great? He told the Pharisees, you fast and you make a show of it because you want everybody to think you're this self-righteous person, you have no reward. When you give money, you blow a trumpet so that everybody will look, and then you drop some big amount in the offering plate. He says, you've had your reward here. You have none from me. So let's put it this way. Two people could do a 40-day fast, and one person does it to accomplish something and to show how religious they are, and another person does it in secret because they're desperate for breakthrough in their life. They did the exact same thing. They will have two completely different rewards and judgments because judgment is completely individual based not just on what you did, but why did you do it? And somebody else may be able to give more money toward the purchase of this property, but they do it because they have to and you're only able to give a hundred bucks, but you do it in pure love and in real sacrifice for the kingdom of heaven and Jesus says, you gave more than the person that gave a thousand. Because Jesus judges us completely individually, not just on what we did, but why did you do it? And how did you do it? Luke 12, Jesus says, um, the servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know, he who did not know, yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required, and to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. That's as plain as it gets right there. Jesus said, I judge you on what you know, and why you did what you did, and what I could reasonably expect from your life. There are people who are born into solid Christian families, and from day one, they're read Bible stories. They're taught right and wrong and they're raised in righteousness and they have married parents and they have success in life. And on a scale of zero to 100, they're born at about 85. Hello? And then they grow up, they make their own faith decision for God. It's not just inherited faith in mom and dad, but hey, I'm gonna go after you, Jesus. And they go toward Jesus, and he is very, very pleased. Other people are born over here at about eight. You're conceived in sin, 
you had no dad or your dad left or your mom was on drugs or you're drinking the whole time you're born or whatever and there's all of this just dysfunction and disaster and sin and you have zero moral compass and you didn't know I mean your dad's a wife beater or who knows what I mean there's a million different problems that you were born with and you go through life and you live in pain and sin and destruction and addiction and terrible stuff and then one day Jesus comes into your life like oh Jesus oh Jesus yes and you take six steps this direction and you're still only about an 18. The rest of the world may look at you and say, that person is a failure. That person is a loser. Why can't she get it right? Why can't she stop what she's doing? Why can't she clean up her mouth or make wiser decisions? You've made way more progress in Jesus than the guy that started out over here at 85. And Jesus is thrilled. I said, Jesus is thrilled. The rest of the world may judge you. The church may think you are a real big screw-up. Jesus is thrilled because he knows where you came from. And you're not compared to the super-Christians. You're compared to Jesus. And his love and his mercy and his forgiveness and what did you do with what you had? In his parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 24, I believe it is, Jesus gives the money to his servants and one of them comes back and says, Jesus, I turned your one into five. I took what you gave me in my life and I, I invested it and I served you and I have five to give you back. And Jesus says, awesome, great. You're a good and faithful servant. I love it. The next guy, he's like, I only got three. Awesome, great, awesome. You did three, thank you. He is no less pleased with the three than the five. The thing that made him mad was the guy that wouldn't do anything with it and he buried it in a hole and didn't do anything. That made him furious. But Jesus was not comparing those that were threes with those that were fives. He was just as happy with both of them because their judgment with Jesus will be completely, intimately individual. What did I give you to start with? And how far have you come? you get it James 3 brethren not let many of you become teachers because knowing, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment so that applies to me for sure and Pastor Josh and, and others but I'm just using this verse to show you that not everybody's judgment is the same Jesus very specifically says those who shape other people's faith you will be held to a higher standard of accountability right so I take that very Seriously, and hopefully I'm doing it all right. Second Corinthians 8, if there is a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has and not according to what he does not have. That is specifically the entire chapter. In fact, there's two chapters there of context. It is about money. And Paul says, if you would like to have given more, but you honestly can't, God will account it to you for what you wanted to give, not what you actually did give. Now that's not using excuses and you know like well you know I can't give because I have this bill and that. I'm just saying if, if it's the honest desire of your heart dang I've sold everything I can sell and I've given everything I can give and I'd like to give more but I can't. God's, God accounts it to you. You actually gave what you wanted to give rather than what you actually did give. So progress. Where did you start? 
What was the thought of your heart? What was the intent of your heart? The Pharisees had all the wrong thoughts and wrong intentions, even though they did the right thing. Other people may be a mess and make all sorts of wrong decisions, but they are making great progress from where they began. And God judges the thoughts and the intents of the heart. We give an account for our own lives, not anybody else's. We will not be compared to any super Christian, book author, TV preacher, superpowered evangelist. It is Jesus and you. And that's it. So he opens up his book. It's all the blood stains all over the pages. Covering every sin, every unrighteousness, every bad decision. And what is left is what you did that was right. <laughs> what you did with the right intentions for the right reasons that bore real fruit. Forgiving somebody. Giving money. Giving time. Speaking up for the truth when you know it was going to make somebody mad. Whatever you did that was real in real love, in real faith, not in religious pretension, but in real love and real faith and real obedience to him, no matter how much it costs, that's on the page. And that's what he reads. And he has a reward. And he says, I can't wait to meet you and give you your reward. Paul wrote about it this way. 2 Timothy 4, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul says, as an old man, apostle for decades, this is the last thing he wrote. This is actually, I think, the last chapter of the last letter he wrote. He said, I know my time is up. I know I'm about to die. He was actually going to be beheaded later on. I don't know that he knew that yet, but um, he knows his time is up. He says, I've fought the fight. I've run the race. My time is up. I'm going to meet Jesus, and I know he has a crown for me. And I can't wait to get it. Paul knew there was a reward an eternal, of eternal value for serving Jesus in this life. Again, if you have any sort of false humility that says, well, I don't need a crown. I'm not worried about treasure, how big my house is, or what I don't understand about all that eternal wealth. I, I, I don't understand it. But Jesus said, store up treasure in heaven. Paul was excited about it. It better be a goal of ours. And in Revelation, it describes the saints, all of us, worshiping Jesus as our great king. And in sheer adoration and exultant glory everybody in heaven falls down on our face and we take our crowns off and we throw them at his feet if you didn't do anything in this life to get a crown you'll be standing there by yourself with nothing to give jesus hello it is false humility where Christians say, well, I'll just be lucky to get into heaven. I'll just be happy to be there. I don't need to try to do any good works. Now, Jesus said, store up treasure in heaven. He said, I have a reward for you. In 1 John, we're told, see to it that you don't lose any of your reward. Paul says, I have a crown of righteousness, not only for me, but for everybody who's excited about his return. 
Yeah, come on. Jesus has reward. He is as hard as it is for you to believe, and I know it is, because Jesus, the fact that he saved us, it, it really is enough. It really is. Like, Jesus, why would you give us any more? We can't do anything but love you back because you loved us first. You died for us and you defeated death and you went to hell on our behalf. Why in the world would you reward us for anything we do after that? But he really is that good. And at Revelation 22:12, the very end, he's like, I'm coming soon and my reward is in my hand. I can't wait to give it to you. He is excited about this part. He is thrilled about this part. Why, Jesus? Why would you be excited at all? We don't owe you anything. We can't earn anything. All we can do is obey you out of love and serve you out of love. And he's like, no, I'm seriously impressed that you would do anything. In the environment you live in, under sin and darkness, and you have to live 100% by faith, you've never seen me, you've never met me, you just have to believe that I'm there. I was there, I lived as a man, I know what temptation is like. I know the separation from God, I know the loneliness, I know the blindness veil that's between you and God. The fact that you would do anything is seriously impressive. Because who gives their money away? I mean, are you fools? You should keep that for yourselves, but you don't. You give it away. I had a missionary who had a job to do and he needed your money and you gave it. And I saw that. And I have a reward for you. Who forgives? No, the world says put a bullet in the other person. But you turn around and forgive? And then you love them in return? That person cussed you out and you bless them? Who does that? That's seriously impressive. Come on, I'm serious. I'm totally serious. Jesus loves your obedience and your faith. And as crazy as it sounds, he is thankful. Because he understands we haven't been to heaven. We haven't seen it. We don't know what's on the other side. We are believing by faith that we can die in this life and live eternally there. We, can, we believe that if we obey this, if we obey him, now there is life on the other side, even though we've never seen that. So seriously, who gives up their time to serve other people? No. You do your own thing. Take care of yourself. That's what the world says. Jesus is watching. And he knows the decisions you've made to obey him. The things you've given up that you really wanted. The choices you've made. Who passes up free sex? Who says, no, I'm going to wait till it's holy? No, you take what you can get now. And Jesus saw that you didn't. You waited till it was right. You obeyed me. That's seriously impressive. Thank you for believing my commands. Thank you for obeying. I saw, I noticed, and I have a reward. Because you forgave, because you loved, because you gave your time, your money, you served somebody. In his parable about himself, in the parable of the talents and the minus, 
the whole focus is, I'm going away on a journey, and when I come back, I'm going to reward you for what you did while I was gone. It's Jesus' own words out of his own mouth about himself that the master comes back to settle accounts with his servants, and I have a reward for all of you who have done anything for me that's of eternal value. Amen. Amen. Right. Yeah. So, if you bow your heads, close your eyes. Thank you, Devin. I'm going to give some time for you and the Lord. If we would judge ourselves, we will not be judged. If you will take an honest look at who you are and how you're behaving, what you're doing with your time and your money and your mouth, your priorities, if you will honestly judge that before Jesus right now, you will not be judged later. So there's some people here, you don't know Jesus, you've never truly repented of your sin, you've never made him the boss and the Lord of your life. You need to do that right now. Jesus, I turn from my sin and I turn toward you. I choose to obey you. I choose to make you the Lord and boss of my life. Please forgive my sin and wash me clean. Take my record off the record. Blot out all of my past with your blood and make me new right now. Thank you for salvation, Jesus. Some of you, you would say you are a believer, but you have real trouble with guilt and shame and fear of Jesus because you're not quite sure that he loves you. You're not quite sure you're forgiven. I curse that voice in Jesus' name. You need to know that he loves you dearly, that you are completely forgiven, that if you have asked to be forgiven, you are forgiven. And there is no one who has screwed up so bad that you cannot be forgiven. Believe that his mercy knows no end. Don't be afraid. Others of you have, you would say you're a believer, but you've been gone a long time. You've wandered a long way off. Jesus says, come back right now. I will receive you. Turn around. We can fix what is broken. We can clean up the mess. Just turn to me right now. Come back to me with your whole heart. Serve me for real. Don't run off. Don't chase your own priorities. Don't hide your sin. Come to me for real. I love you. I will accept you. I forgive you. Don't hide from me. Others of you, you're, you know you're saved. You're good with Jesus. You love him. You know he loves you. Just, there's just that thing that you haven't defeated yet. There's that temptation, that addiction or whatever that's got a hold. Jesus says, I hear your repentance. 
I, I've seen your tears and I've heard your prayers and I know you hate it. Just keep moving forward and I will clean you and we'll arrive at that day in victory and smiles and purity. Don't give up. Don't quit. Don't give in to it. Don't be afraid of me. The Lord says, I've collected every tear. I have your tears of joy. I have your tears of repentance. I have your tears of sorrow and loneliness. I have them all in a jar right here at my hand. I've seen everything. I know every detail. I know what you've given up to serve me. I know the dreams of your heart that you've laid on the altar. I know the money you've given away that nobody else knows about. I know of your praying late in the night. I've heard your anger. I've heard your tears. I've heard your laughter. I have it all. I know when you were all alone and you made the hard decision, when there was no benefit to obeying me, you did it anyway. I saw you when you were by yourself in private and you said, Lord, I will obey you no matter what. I heard your childlike faith. I heard you choose me when you were a little girl. And I haven't lost you ever since. I know all those things. I've seen all those things that nobody else knows and nobody else sees. Good and bad, I've seen it all. And I love you and you are mine. Stay with me. It'll all come together. It'll all make sense. There will be victory and reward and salvation and greater joy you can ever imagine. Just come toward me. Walk with me. Stay with me. Keep obeying. I know it hurts. Keep obeying. I have great joy and great reward ahead of you. You will make it. Those of you who are intentionally hiding sin, I see that too. And I tell you, turn around before it's too late. Don't walk in darkness. Come to my light. Turn away from the sin. It will kill you. I don't want you to be lost. I love you and I want you with me. It is your choice. 
turn around. Come back to me. Don't hide it. Don't excuse it. Don't blow it off. Don't think you you can defeat it. You need me. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your unconditional offer of salvation. Thank you for your extension of love and forgiveness to absolutely anyone and everyone. Thank you. You don't want any of us to perish or be condemned. You want us with you. Thank you for destroying everything that has held us back every lie, every sin, every fear. You've defeated it all right now this morning. And we run toward you, Jesus. We will not be afraid to draw near to you. We will not be afraid to see you face to face and eye to eye. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for teaching us your truth. Thank you for your encouragement, for your call, and for your warnings. Thank you for your victory over all of it. We love you, Jesus.